Thank you. Um, yeah, good to see comrades here. I mean, the, the question is, is it too late to save the planet? Um, I mean, f firstly, I'm, I'm going to argue today that, I mean, it is too late to stop there being very, very serious um, impacts from climate change on our, on our, on our world and, the, and catastrophic impacts, in fact, on our world. Uh, we're already seeing that play out now all around the world and there's a hell of a lot more in the pipeline even if we were to stop all fossil fuel, full fuel use tomorrow. Um, that said, it absolutely is always worth fighting um, every inch of the way, always worth fighting to stop more fossil fuels being extracted from the ground, fighting to have systems in place to actually take care of people, fighting for the alternative ways of producing energy and making a life that we that we desperately need, fighting for socialism um, to actually deal with the, the crisis as it's unfolding. And, you know, the, the less fossil fuel is burnt, uh, the better um, we're going to actually be able to try to have some level of stability in the climate system to be able to maintain, you know, sort of human existence in human society. So, you know, we have to fight. You have to fight every have to fight every step of the way, and it's never wasted. And it's always about um, trying to improve the improve the situation. Um, it is, I think, worth acknowledging. I was just going to um, talk at the start of this talk um, about I think the qualitatively new situation that we are in this year, as opposed to previous years in terms of the climate catastrophe, um, on two levels. Firstly in terms of the acceleration of climate breakdown and secondly in terms of I guess you'd say the end of um, any suggestion that the whole uh, experience of the Paris um, uh, COP conference and the setting of the 1.5 degree target and the government commitments around the world that they were going to try to take action to keep us to the 1.5 um, degree target. I think we can categorically say that that particular political cycle is over. Those efforts have failed catastrophically and none of those governments are actually keeping to any of the commitments they made. And I don't think there's any pretense anymore that the commitments that were made there, I mean, except from our own government and some others in terms of their rhetoric, we can go on to discuss. But in terms of the actual, you know, policy uh, framework in terms of what's actually happening with fossil fuel production, it's accelerating and, um, and, and you've had a catastrophic failure of the, the whole COP process and the whole 1.5 degree target. So those two things I think have become very, very apparent this year. I'll talk about that at the start of my talk and then I'll go on to talk about the movement we need and the question of climate catastrophe and revolution. And, um, you know, what we argue as socialists is, is actually needed um, to try to make the best of, you know, the situation and, and try, to, try to turn things around and, and fight, for a, fight for a habitable planet. Um, firstly, in terms of the world moving into a qualitatively new situation with climate breakdown. I mean, this is a graph behind me of the wildfires that we're currently seeing in Canada. As you can see, compared to anything over the last 10 years, it's nothing like it. Like the scale of the fires is off the charts. It's, you know, far more than twice the um, area of forest that's been burnt than in any time in um, the history of Canada, recorded history. Uh, there was, you know, some massive fires in the mid-1990s. It's more than double that now in the fire season and still ongoing. There's, you know, tens of thousands of people uh, from, you know, various areas in Canada that have currently been evacuated from, you know, evacuated from cities because of, you know, the uh, and their towns because of, um, you know, because of these fires and just really untold, you know, really untold devastation. Actually, the emissions, the carbon emissions from the fires that we've seen in Canada over the last few months are actually double the annual emissions from Canada's economy just from the fires um, themselves, um, right? So this is, you know, they're, they're, not only are these fires is awful in terms of what they do, you know, to um, to the, the ecosystem, to human beings that are trying to survive in these areas. They're also part of these really scary feedback loops that we actually have that kick in as the climate um, catastrophe.
catastrophe, um, you know, goes on and gets worse, you know. So, they, you know, the increasing temperatures lead to more uh, forest fires, which lead to more carbon emissions, which drives up the increasing temperatures. It's just one of many um, of these very scary feedback loops. It's obviously not just in Canada. People would have seen the fires everywhere, you know, a horrific, you know, devastation on the island of Maui and Hawaii, uh, you know, all across Europe, um, you know, there's there's been catastrophic fires. Just two days ago, um, you know, there was uh, the remains of 19 people found in Greece, um, you know, from, uh, as a result of the wildfires close to the border with Turkey. Those those people are thought to be asylum seekers. They're not accounted for in terms of uh, Greek, uh, you know, the, the Greek population. They're thought to be asylum seekers. And I think that really does underscore again the way that these impacts are very much felt uh, most heavily by people that are already on the margins of society, that are already Already struggling in various ways. There's some, you know, really awful, you know, ways in which the climate crisis actually intersects with oppression and hits, you know, hits the oppressed um, the heart the hardest. Um, maybe if you just go to the next graph, graph of doom. All right, this one shows you what's going on at the North Atlantic sea temperature. Right, so the the um, green arrow, uh, sorry, the green line that plots the highest sea temperatures. Um, between the years uh, 1982 and 2022. So they took the highest temperature out of those 40 years and plotted that into a graph in green. And then the red is what we've had this year in terms of the North Atlantic, right? So it is like off the charts. And the climate scientists that are studying this and looking at this are saying like, what the hell is going on? Um, like in terms of actual increase in terms of the global temperature, um, Sorry, maybe just um, go to another graph. I think I've got global temperature. I oh, know I've got another one. This is even more scary, right? This is the this is the Antarctic sea ice, <laughs> and what this shows you is what this plots is standard deviations from the mean, right? So what is the actual mean of as to where the amount of ice we're supposed to have in Antarctica? If you look over, you know, preceding decades, what's the actual mean, which would say where the sea ice would be? And this shows how many standard deviations from that mean are we actually currently experiencing? And this graph says like it's six standard deviations from the mean. This is like doesn't make sense statistically, right? This is like one in seven billion chance of such a thing occurring under normal conditions. And yet this is occurring right now with the collapse of the Antarctic sea ice. So there's sea ice missing from the Antarctic sea ice this uh, season, bigger than the state of Western Australia. And like the uh, climate scientists are absolutely freaking out about this. I mean, I heard one guy being interviewed on, the ra on Radio National a couple of weeks ago and he said, this is like walking out in the morning and the sky is green. Like that is the actual difference in terms of how full-on the change in the ecosystem is. And they actually can't explain it. I mean, it, it is because of global warming, for sure, because of warming sea, but they actually can't explain why it is this bad, you know, now. And I think that that does underscore, you know, we've been you know, terrified by the IPCC reports that have come out, you know, every few years and show the catastrophic impacts of climate change and what they'll be at 1.5 degrees, what they'll be at 2 degrees. But those IPCC reports are actually profoundly conservative in terms of what they're putting forward because to get through the IPCC process, you need the sign-off of every government on the planet, including petro states like Australia and Saudi Arabia, right, need to sign off on the thing. So actually it's profoundly conservative what they present as being like the global scientific consensus. But then you look at the margins of that and what might be possible you know, it's even it is it is even more terrifying. So maybe just um, to the next one. Okay. So I don't I don't have the um, I don't have the uh, the overall global uh, temperature air, air surface temperature, but people will have heard that July was the hottest month 
in more than 100,000 years, certainly the, the hottest month that we've had in, you know, in, in recent history. It broke 17 degrees for the first time ever in July in terms of a global average temperature, and it stayed there for an entire month, right? So it was like a record temperature. It stayed there for an entire month, and it's still up around those, it's still up around those, um, still up around those levels. The North Atlantic Sea temperature that I showed you before, there's also some explanation that's been put forward by James Hansen and some other scientists, which also show you the extent to which trying to actually guess and model what's going to happen with our climate system is something that's very, very difficult to do, right? Because one of the reasons they think the temperature in the North Atlantic is has increased so rapidly in the last little bit. Overwhelmingly, it's global warming driven by carbon emissions. But there's also something that's happened over the last three years where there have been global shipping regulations that have been brought in to clean up shipping fuel and actually take sulphur, which causes acid rain, out of the shipping fuel. But <laughs> that sulphur is a particulate that's been hanging around in the atmosphere for decades, masking warm to some extent and reflecting uh, uh, reflecting sunlight back into the atmosphere. So by cleaning up the shipping fuel, which they absolutely should do, right, it's a thing, they've actually had this shock, they're called a termination shock is what James Hansen calls it, of suddenly these aerosols not being there before. And you can look actually at the areas of the world that had a high, high coverage of sulphur um, aerosols prior because they're intense shipping lanes like the North Atlantic Ocean. Now that's gone and suddenly you've actually had quite a sharp increase over a short period of time in the, in the, in the surface temperature. Now that's contested, it's arguments about climate scientists about whether that's what's going on, but I do think it's important to acknowledge we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what will happen when you start fucking around with the Earth's climate system, you know, in the way that in the way that we have done. And you can't predict the sorts of things that will, you know, cascade out of control. So we don't have as much Atlantic uh, Antarctic sea ice. You know, we've got this historic low in Antarctic sea ice as we're coming into summer. And so suddenly there's less of Antarctica to reflect the sea, to reflect the sunlight back into the atmosphere. Another full on feedback loop again that we can't pretend to start to understand or control. So, you know, very, very scary sort of, um, you know, very, very scary situation. This is all happening at a mean temperature increase of 1.2 degrees, right? So this is like, the, we're going to potentially actually this year, we'll wait and see, but potentially this year could record global temperatures that are 1.5 degrees above uh, uh, above the mean. That's a, that's a potential. It won't be breaching the Paris target in the same way because that 1.5 degree in the Paris target is a long-term average. You can have one year that's higher. It doesn't mean you've breached the target. But this is all happening at a mean of 1.2. I mean, the IPCC was saying that we, we'd, we'd hit 1.5 degrees by the 2030s if we continue to burn fossil fuel in the same way and potentially potentially two degrees by mid-century. James Hansen and his scientists, they're saying that 1.5, we're going to blow up before the end of this decade, and we could easily have two degrees by 2040, right? So this is very true. And two degrees, like two degree mean increase is catastrophic. Like you are talking about large scale crop failure, a whole range of things that would just make, you know, human society as we currently live physically impossible to actually, you know, continue to live in the, in the same way we are, given the, you know, incredible changes that would be, you know, that, 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 that would come about. Okay, now this graph I think is quite important because this shows politically what's actually happened since the Paris Agreement and everything is it's all bullshit, right? All these things that we're going to decrease our emissions because we're going to get to 1.5 degrees. Well, Australia's emissions are increasing, right? They are increasing Australia's emissions, as you can see. The new report came out just yesterday and they found that emissions had increased from 2022 to 2023 on the Australian government's own figures, right? And one of the things that I think is important to understand, this is an Australia Institute graph where they've taken out land use. They don't count land use when they're calculating Australia's emissions. The Australian government does. They include land use when they calculate their overall emissions because what they do, and this is not 
well understood. What they do when they report on Australia's emissions is they actually subtract, right, what they say vegetation has grown. There's been changes in land use. And so that's pulled carbon out of the atmosphere. And so we can subtract that from Australia's actual emissions and include that in our base figures. So when they say we're going to decrease carbon emissions by 43% by 2030 on 2005 levels, they claim they've already done 20, they've already done half of that. There's already been a 25% reduction on 2005 levels, even though there hasn't been. There actually hasn't, if you look at the Australian Institute graph, been any substantive reduction since 2000, since 2005. The Australian government claimed there'd been a 25% reduction because they say there's been vegetation growth and that's taken the carbon out of the atmosphere, right? What they don't count is when there's a bushfire, like 2019-2020 Black Summer, put into the atmosphere 1.6 times Australia's annual emissions, those bushfires. And that's not been counted on the other side of the ledger to actually count as Australia's positive emissions. So it is a scam. Like, it is actually a scam the way they talk about Australia's level of emissions. And it's a scam that they have perfected over many, many, many years, over decades, in fact, of being able to go to international conferences and try and pass off business as usual in terms of fossil fuel um, combustion and extraction in Australia. And, you know, we can just continue to do this. We'll find some tricky ways to fiddle the books. We'll use the fact we've got a big continent where there's lots of vegetation to try to create some sort of situation where that looks like we're reducing emissions, where we're not actually reducing emissions. And that's not even when you get to their safeguard mechanism plan, which is what is supposed to take us towards the 43% reduction target, which is all about offsets. And I don't need to go over that like in, in, in terms of intense detail because we've been through it as an organisation. I'd encourage people to read our material. But the actual safeguard mechanism policy that the Labor Party has introduced does not require emissions reductions at all. There's no requirement that there's actual emissions of actual, you know, a reduction of actual emissions in Australia. All it does is mandate that if you're going to emit, you need to buy offsets to do it, right? That's, that's what's actually built in. And how can you be talking about offsets based on vegetation with the, with the, you know, uh, pyro scene that we're entering into and with the enormous, you know, amount of fire that's actually in the, that we actually see in the landscape? Okay, if you just go to the next graph. Okay, and this also shows you the death of the Paris process, right? Because there had, was some reduction from 2015 to 2019, some reduction in investment in fossil fuels. So the green, so the red shows you investment in fossil fuels, right? But since 2020, globally, it's been increasing, right? Increasing. So 2022, there was almost $1 trillion worth of investment in new fossil fuel projects worldwide. Right. So the thing is just there's no Paris Agreement. There's no we're going to reduce emissions. It's all increasing, not only in Australia, but sort of actually around the world. I mean, you can see in the in the blue. OK, look, there we've got a growth in renewables. Isn't that good? We've got a growth in renewables. I mean, of course, we need more renewables, but it's any growth in renewables. They're just increasing fossil fuels at the same rate. So it's not like one cancels the other out. Like you're actually just getting more, you know, more fossil fuels, more, you know, actually going into more going into the um, in, into the atmosphere. And the G20 nations are responsible for 80 percent of carbon emissions. So the 20 major economies in the world are responsible for 80 percent of global carbon emissions. And the IMF estimated this also came out just a couple of days ago, an IMF report that said that fossil fuels are being subsidized by the G20 nations at a rate of 13 million dollars a minute. Right, direct subsidies to the fossil fuel industry from G20 nations, 1.4 trillion dollars in 2022. Right, so this is the total amount is that 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 level of subsidy, 1.4 trillion dollars for the fossil fuel industry in 2022, is double 
the amount of subsidy in 2019. Double the amount of subsidy in 2019. And why is this happening? A big part of it is actually response to the war in Ukraine. And I think, again, that sort of shows us the way that you can make all the pledges you like and do all this thing. And But actually, these governments are operating in a world where what dominates their thinking, what dominates what they do is inter-imperialist competition and rivalry. They are a major, they are all major capitalist economies that are competing on the global scale to make more profits for the companies that are actually based within their borders, right? They are not going to do anything that undercuts an advantage that they might have against another capitalist economy, right? So taking unilateral action to say we will decarbonise our economy in the context of global Capitalist competition, global inter-imperialist rivalry, not going to happen, right? They, their commitment is to the profitability of their own capitalist firms, right? And that's that's what matters. So when you had the war in Ukraine, when that's going on and suddenly you have um, fossil fuels become a lot more expensive, suddenly you have fossil fuels becoming a lot harder to get, they just prioritise finding other sources of fossil fuels and managing to subsidise the expensive fossil fuels that do exist so their, their own companies can continue to have cheap as power as possible to continue to compete on the global, compete on the global, on the global scale. And so then there's the Australian, you know, the Australian um, emissions that we've, that we've looked at and that we've gone into. Okay, the, the last sort of point I'll make about the failure of the actual framework we've got now is about the whole idea that the private market will take us to the new renewable future, right? So this is this idea that renewables are cheaper now. So the logic of capitalism is what's going to actually deliver us a transition, right? That's what they say. Renewables are cheaper. This is central to what Labor says. This is central to what Labor argues. But renewable development in Australia has gone off a cliff, investment in renewable um, generation in Australia in the, last, in the last 12 months. So the first six months of this year saw the lowest level investment in renewables since 2017. The number of new renewable projects signed off over this period roughly equals the number of new coal and gas mines that were approved by the Labor government. Right. So the, the you know, so the actual commitment, if there's not an institutional commitment, if there's not a commitment from the state to actually lead an, a, a transition, regulate to force a transition, invest the billions of dollars directly that are required to actually accompany, you know, the, the, the transition, it's not going to happen. You leave it up to the private market, it won't happen. Right. That's not that it, it's not going on. And what the consequences of this now are is that the MINS government here in New South Wales is talking about extending the life of the Araring power station to the tune of $400 million subsidies a year to keep Araring open rather than saying we will actually invest directly in renewables. We need a renewable revolution. We're going to do it. We're going to build it. Here's where we're going to build it. We're going to plan for it. We're going to fund it off the table. I mean, that's how they got their coal fire power stations. The state government built them. <laughs> that's how they got their transmission lines. The state government built them. But when it comes to renewables, we can't possibly do that. It has to be up to the market, etc. So we've got a, you know, a catastrophic failure of the current system to be able to either stop fossil fuel production or develop the actual um, alternative uh, sources of energy that we need. So that moves to the question of what kind of campaign we need, what kind of fight we need. And I think what the last election in the last 12 months has also shown us is the failure of a parliamentary strategy for change, right? So we had a climate election last year, right? So a lot of the reason why the Albanese government was elected, acknowledged by everyone, is because of what's going on with climate, because people want action on climate. The Greens got a historic vote. You had Teals put in because of, you know, it was called the climate election. What you got was the safeguard mechanism and no actual change. And very, and I 
think this is quite telling, what you actually got from the Greens, who were put there to push for greater climate action, is they have twice now capitulated to Labor. They capitulated over the pathetic 43% target, and they capitulated over the safeguard mechanism. And the reason they did so is because their theory of change that they've sold to everyone is, if you give us a, a minority government, where Labor have to negotiate with us to get things through the parliament, that's going to be this amazingly powerful thing where we are going to be able to extract all these concessions from Labor. But actually the opposite is true. If they don't vote with Labor to get things through and they've sold this strategy to their supporters, it's like, well, what's the point of you? You know, you're just blocking things. We want you to be able to get progress. So instead what they do is they line up with Labor to push these things through and then bullshit about the actual consequences of it. So Adam Bant comes out at the day after the safeguard mechanism passes and says, coal and gas has taken a big hit. The Beetaloo Basin project is looking shaky now. Look at the stock market. The, the, the prices for the fossil fuel companies all went down. The next day when the prices from the fossil fuel companies all went up to higher than they were the day before, he didn't come out and say, oh, sorry, got that wrong. Actually, the fossil fuel industry don't care. This is going to do nothing. They've left an impression in the heads of far too many people out there across the electorate that something meaningful actually has happened in the Australian parliament, right? That has been the impression that the Greens have created. So there's a logic in the electoralism. Not only does it not deliver any change, but it also means that you're selling people fantasy stories about what is actually going on and how about we can actually get change rather than screaming from the rooftops, which is what you need to be doing as a politician worth your at the moment. This is rubbish. Fossil fuels are increasing. You're never going to get it with an offsets regime. You know, we need to fight. We need mass mobilisation. We need people to actually take on the government. And that's what we have consistently tried to do is build a fighting climate movement, right? We say, look at the scale of what we're up against. What do we need to build? We actually need to build a power that can take this on. That's not an electoral force. That's not something that's going to be elected to the parliament that's run and controlled essentially by the business class. That's going to be about building building power within the economy to actually shut it down. We need to build our power as workers to be able to strike, to be able to hit the system, to be able to challenge its priorities. You know, we need to be out, build the power of the protest movement to be able to put hundreds of thousands of people on the street to really fight and create a force that is dis so disruptive to the politics as usual that they can't ignore. And going along with that is you need a movement that actually clear politically about what's wrong with the whole policy orientation of private renewables and offset markets, all garbage, right? We have to actually build a movement that understands that is a massive distraction that has captivated people for 25 years and led to this. What we need is direct investment now, create the millions of jobs now, directly employ the people that are needed to carry out the actual transition. And we're going to fight for it. And we're not going to let you run your city if you're going to continue, you know, along this, along this line of catastrophe. And just the last point I'll make is about the question of, you know, catastrophe and revolution. Because I think, you know, if you look historically at when there have been revolutions, I mean, Lenin makes a point very clearly, you actually can't have a revolutionary situation unless the ruling class can't rule in the old way, right? There needs to be some level of crises within the system whereby the people that control us, their ideas, the legitimacy that's based around their system in terms of the ideas and how they justify it to people start to break down and their actual capacity to actually organise and inform 
enforce their power is also breaking down. That's what creates the opportunity for a fighting workers movement to be able to step in and say, well, we've got a solid alternative here that's actually based on our own power, that's based on being able to organise collectively, make democratic decisions in the workplace and in our communities about what our priorities are, how resources should be used, what we work on, you know, what actually creates the opportunity for such a movement to take power, it's a crisis at the top. And we are going to have no shortage of crises at the top over the next 10 or 20 years. You know, you think about 10, 15 years, this keeps going and the level of crises that people are going to be in, the, you know, what the, thing, the waves and waves of crises that will actually hit us, I think, you know, we need to be organised at work, a stronger union means that when those crises come, you're going to have people around you you can work with collectively to respond, both to keep people fed, to keep people housed, to respond to the urgent situation, but also to fight the government and actually create a counterpower that can start to pose itself as an alternative to capitalism, one that's actually based on the workplace, one that's based on the community, one that's based on, you know, sort of collective working class organisation. So I do think that the question of crisis response actually becomes quite important as well, you know, like in terms of being able to actually use our collective power, use our unions, etc., to respond in the times of emergency, in the times of crises, and all through that process to be constantly saying and reminding people who put us here. Why are we in this crisis? It's not because people are all so greedy and we just consume too much. And what rubbish. These people hold the levers of what we invest in, how we invest in it, how we produce, how we make energy. And for 50 years, they have known what it's doing to the planet. For 50 years. And they have fought tooth and nail every step of the way to challenge fossil fuels so they can hold on to and continue to mine and extract and burn fossil fuels. They're to blame, right? And people need to understand they're to blame and we need a movement that that we're building, that when those crisis moments come, the anger, the clarity, the political clarity is there where we say, no longer are we going to talk about lobbying you, asking you nicely, we're taking it off you. You know, and we're pushing you aside, right? And people actually take take the reins of the productive resources we need to make a society that can actually live sustainably with the earth and to actually keep people safe, keep people fed and allow us to make a life in a very unstable world that we're going to be inheriting, you know, in the coming decades. So, yeah, I might just leave it there, comrades, and enjoy the discussion.